you guys have your Bibles, we turn to 2 Kings chapter 1, and we will be finishing up the chapter. It is quite long, a long passage, so as I have been doing for quite some time, going through the, the king's narratives, I will just walk us through the passage. And at certain points where I feel necessary, I will stop and read the, 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 the verse at hand. But just to recap, what, what happened in chapter 2, verses 1 through 8? Remember, King Ahaziah, the son of King Ahab, now took the throne. And he, as we see, he has a very short-lived reign over the nation of Israel. Just one year. Now, early in his kingly reign, he gets injured. It says he fell through the lattice of his upper chamber in Samaria. So wooden beams that were supposed to hold him could not hold his weight. And he fell to the first floor, most likely breaking a lot of bones and just knowing just the, the medical technology that was available to them, there, there was no chance for him to really walk. So what does he do as the king of Israel? Instead of seeking after God, Seeking after the prophets of God, he seeks after the Philistine God, Beelzebub. You guys remember the Lord of the Flies. Because in Palestinian folklore, they believe that it, were, it was the flies that were responsible for man's ailments. So if there's a God who can remove the flies from a person, that's the person that you need to go seek. And who better than the Lord of the flies? And this upsets God greatly. Because he is the, the king of Israel. He is supposed to be the mouthpiece of God. He represents God to the people. And instead of seeking the God of his chosen people, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He goes, seeks a foreign God. And God sends Elijah the prophet to condemn him. And what does he tell the king? You shall not come down the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. From verse 9 through 18, we're going to see a tug of war taking place between Ahaziah and Elijah. After the king has heard the news that Elijah has given him this message from God, scary, scary message. It seems that King Ahaziah will not take this message sitting down. That he will not go without a fight 
until he gets the response from Elijah that he desires. Listen to this. In verse 9, it reads this, that the king sent to, to him, him being Elijah, a captain of 50 men with his 50. So what is the king doing here? He is summoning Elijah. But we can see that there is ulterior motives behind what Ahaziah is doing. He is sending a captain with 50 men to go seek out Elijah and to bring Elijah back to him. Elijah is one man. Elijah is not a warrior. He is a prophet. He does not work out his body. He works out his spiritual life. He is no threat to one captain. So why does Isaiah send a skilled captain with 50 other men? You guys have to think about that. I don't believe that Isaiah believed that Elijah would be a threat to all 51 men. As I was sending a message. What message was he sending Elijah? He's telling Elijah this. I'm going to show you who you really need to fear. You come to the king with these words. You threaten the king. And you tell me, thus says the Lord. I'm going to tell you who you really should be afraid of. So King Ahaziah is flexing his muscles before Elijah. Showing Elijah who he really needs to fear and intimidating him. He's using means of intimidation. But for what purpose? What is the end goal? Most likely, again, this is silent in scripture, but most likely it is to get Elijah to reverse that curse upon the king's life. And to get Elijah to say what King Isaiah wants him to say. Tell your God to bless me, possibly. So he is using any means necessary to not let this prophecy against his life happen. And so this captain went up to Elijah, and it says that Elijah was found at the top of the hill, of a hill. And this is what the captain says to him. O man of God, the king says, come down. Now listen to Elijah's response. He responds to the captain of the 50. If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven, consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven 
and consumed him and his 50. Wow, what just happened here? You're going to see this often if you guys haven't seen it already in 1 Kings. Interesting things that unfold. Stories that, that are just really just not normal. Elijah, understanding what the king was trying to do, and also listening to the tone of the voice of the captain. Scholars believe that this captain said, son of God, sorry, the man of God, in a very derogatory way. It's like, you, son of, you, man of God, come with me. But Elijah, knowing full well the real, the real intentions of King Ahaziah, he says, if I am the man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume him. This is reminiscent of what we read in 1 Kings, when Elijah summoned fire from heaven to consume his sacrifice. You guys remember what took place on Mount Carmel. Fire came down from heaven. But only this time, this fire from heaven did not consume a dead animal. It consumed living creatures, human beings. So Isaiah went to Elijah sending a message. And Elijah sent the message right back. And he's reminding Ahaziah, no, you should be the one that should be fearful, not me. What happens next? What happens next boggles my mind. After fire came down and consumed the captain and his 50 men, Verse 11 tells us that the king sent to him another captain, 50 men with his 50. So King Ahaziah is furious. He sends another 51 men. So the second unit is now going up to meet Elijah. The second unit saw what happened to the first unit. They saw what happened to their, their, their brothers, consumed by fire from heaven. I want you to listen to what this captain says of the second unit. He says, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. <coughs> he is more rough with Elijah. Is more bold with Elijah. He doesn't just say, come down. He says, come down quickly. It's as if they have no fear whatsoever. The first time didn't do the trick for Elijah. I mean, for King Ahaziah. And apparently, it didn't do the trick for this captain either. 
I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Same response. And the same thing happens. Fire comes down and consumes the second unit. And so now we have 102 men total that have been consumed by fire from heaven. These things do not happen. <coughs> Elijah sending a message to Ahaziah. You cannot scare me. You sending all your mighty warriors. You do not know who I serve. Verse 13, guess what the king does? He sends the captain of a third 50 with his 50. He's not giving up. He'll probably kill his whole army, the whole Israelite army, if he has to at this point. He is not giving up. He sends another 51 men captain with his 50 men. Imagine if you were the captain or one of those men in the third unit. I would be trembling in fear. Maybe I would run for my life. But this captain was more sensible than the others. It's quite comical because he says this, when he approaches Elijah, oh man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two, for their cap two former captains of 50 men with their 50s. But now let my life be precious in your sight. Cries out for mercy which should have been the response of the second captain, but I guess third time's a charm. So he came before Elijah in humility. He knew he would fall under the same fate if he were to follow what the two former captains had done. And I guess because this captain came in humility before Elijah, it says that the angel of the Lord came to Elijah and said to him, go down with him, do not be afraid of him. And so he went down to meet the king. And because the king was rebellious, even to this point, even with the, the, the words of God, and he faced this, this death sentence from God himself, and because this king would not budge, he would not repent. 
those words were now set in stone. These would be the last words that he would hear from prophet Elijah. Thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Nothing changed. No words have been altered. It's exactly the same thing that Elijah told the king the very first time. Elijah saying, this is it. This is your fate. As silly as it sounds, why in the world did King Ahaziah do what he did? And sending not one, not two, but three units to, to go get Elijah. To pretty much intimidate him. Possibly throw him in prison. I believe the answer is pride. The heart of the matter is the king's pride. He could not accept the fact that he would die. He could not face the fact that he was under a curse by God. Who else does that sound like? That sounds very similar to to his father Ahab, who tried to trick God. And this is what pride does. It blinds the person of reality. And they live in an alternate reality where they are gods, where they think they stand a chance with God himself. When you think about it, when you think about it, it is sin that is at the heart. It is pride, sorry. It, it, pride is in the heart of all sins. Pastor John Spurgeon is the one who said, pride may set down as the sin of human nature. That was the first sin. That has been the sin that has made man fall over the centuries. Pride. It is no wonder Proverbs 16, 18 tells us, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Here's the thing. This topic of, of pride, we've heard this many times over. I don't know how many times I preached on this topic going through 1 Kings. But here's the thing. You're going to find it over and over throughout Scripture. There's not one place in Scripture you can turn to where you will not see the issue of pride being dealt with. This is the issue of man.
I ask you guys. Something, again, we've heard many times over. Do we harbor that kind of, of self-haughtiness, self-confidence? Because if you are a follower of God, the only pride that we should have is in our weakness and pride in, in God who holds the true strength. I want to read for you guys a parable shared by Jesus Christ. It's found in Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. And it deals with pride. And how there is no hope and redemption for those who are prideful. It says this, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, God, I thank you, I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone, and here is the truth bomb right here, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And one who humbles himself will be exalted. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. In one story, we have two characters. One filled with self-righteousness which is rooted in pride. So pride is not something that the pagans, that the unregenerate deal with. Believers wrestle with this as well. Dealing with pride, self-righteousness, is a matter that the church must deal with. <coughs> it is not foreign to us. You know, the Greek philosophers, they believed that there was no such thing as a selfless act, that no human being could ever be selfless. That in every selfless act, the act of giving to the poor, it was always, and this is subconsciously, for selfish reasons. Many people give 
so they feel good. That's selfish right there. You may not ask for anything in return, but you have gained a, a, a joyful spirit, a spirit that gave to another. And philosophers believe that that in and of itself was selfish. You cannot escape selfishness. To some degree, I believe that is true. Because it is pride that we are talking about. <laughs> and we wrestle with this because we live in the flesh. The flesh, by nature, is greedy and self-seeking. So we always have to check ourselves. Even in recognizing your own humility, that's prideful. It's like, wow, I'm pretty humble. You're doing exactly what the Pharisee is doing. This is the danger of pride. That it hits you from every angle, every sin. And boil down to this one thing. <clears throat> and then we have on the other hand, the person that we should be. Someone who recognizes their own brokenness. Their flaws, their shortcomings. Because when you recognize that, then you can come to a place of true humbleness. You know who knew this very well were the Puritans. John Flavel, 7th century English Puritan, wrote this. It says, when a corn is nearly ripe, it bows its head and stoops lower when it was green. When the people of God are near ripe for heaven, they grow more humble and self-denying. Paul had one foot in heaven when he called himself the chiefest of sinners and the least of saints. I love that imagery. Ripe for heaven. The closer and closer we get to heaven and the more and more of God that is revealed to us, we cannot help but to bow our heads down. To recognize God's greatness. Augustine said, humility is the foundation of all other virtues. Hence, in the soul in which the virtues does not exist, there cannot be any other virtue, virtue except in mere appearance. It's the apex of all virtues, humility. So to him, humility... What was the foundation 
of all what we would call even Christian virtues. We know this. this. I'm not teaching you guys anything new. Yes, we need to be humble. How do we do this? How do we remain humble and keep a contrite spirit within us? It is seeing more of God and less of yourself. That is how. This, I'm telling you guys, is harder than it looks. Harder than it sounds. Because the person that you care about the most is yourself. The person that you pay attention to most in this life is yourself. Do you know why there are so many you know, we had a beautiful marriage. Why there are so many divorces in marriages? The statistic is one in two. That number has remained consistent over the years. One in two. That means if you go to ten weddings, statistically speaking, five of them, within five years or so, will, will end in disaster. Why? Selfishness. Selfishness. They are going into the marriage with selfish ambitions. The question that they are asking when they are entering into marriage is, what can you do for me? And this is where the problem lies. You know, Tim Keller, as our sister Ruth shared during the, the praise, he wrote another book called The Purpose of Marriage, talking about marriage itself. And he shared a story about, you know, when he kissed his wife while he was dating, and many years later now that he's married are very different. You know, when he kissed his wife when he was dating, it was electrifying. It was weak in the knees. But that was selfish, according to Pastor Keller. Because it was all about emotion, what the other person offered to him. You make me feel good. You give me butterflies in my stomach. You make my heart race. At the end of the day, it's all about the self. But as he matured in Christ and matured in, in marriage, that kiss is different. It's what can I offer to my spouse? What can I sacrifice to make the other person happy? That is going to save a relationship. But this is what is going to save the human soul. We have to see outside of ourselves. Where are we going to look? You want to beat down pride to a pulp? 
look to God. Force yourself to look to God. Force your mind to bask in the glory of his greatness. Seriously. Don't worry about what God can offer you because you're, go you're going back down to the self again at that point. Cut it off. God, who are you? Lord, I worship you and all your greatness. Exodus 20, verses 18 through 19. The Israelites are at the base of Mount Sinai where Moses is going up to meet God. It says this, Now when the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sounds of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. They stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us. We will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. When you meet God, unfiltered, okay, unfiltered, in all his glory, this is the reaction you're going to get, okay? It's like looking directly into the sun. You cannot handle his glory. And the people could not help but to tremble in fear. This is who our God is. Mighty beyond human imagination. Can you write down in words how great and mighty God is? It is power that we know absolutely nothing about. It's foreign to us. This will start, jumpstart, a right attitude before God. Because when you see that, when you see God in all his glory, you're not looking at yourself. The Israelites were not thinking about themselves, how good they looked, what they're going to eat. They were consumed with the greatness of their God. And fear struck them. We need that, guys. I think we need to introduce once again into the church a healthy, rightful fear of God. We have lost that over the, the years. Somehow God has become our pal. This is the God that is responsible for giving breath into your lungs. He is giving you life. Every breath that you are taking is a gift from God. Every time you wake up, that is a gift from God. The fact that we are not killed completely by this scary world is because of God's providence. 
And you just want to get a little picture of how great God is. Read Job. And read what God has to tell Job about himself. Because God goes chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter proclaiming his own greatness. And when God does it, he's not boasting. He's telling the truth. Recognize how great he is. But what does that do? What does recognizing God's greatness do for us? It does something. You know what it does? It helps us recognize our own sinfulness. We are able to see just how small we are. We cannot help but to fall prostrate before God Almighty. We've seen this throughout Scripture for those who have met God. And even those who, think about this, those who confused angels for God himself, if they fell before angels and tried to worship an angel, imagine how beautiful and grand and glorious God is. An angel is just a messenger for God. But these men would fall prostrate before him. You know what that word prostrate is? Completely overcome and lacking vitality, will, and power to rise. You have no power in you to even get back up on your own. Everything, every ounce of your strength has left you. It's only for those who see God for who he is. And so when the Christian faith is centered around righteous living and moral codes to uphold, it no longer becomes a power-driven faith. You have weak faith. Shallow faith is a faith that is centered around what you can do for God or what God can do for you. Center it around God himself. Yes, we are humbled by how mighty he is. We get that. And an offshoot of that is his wrath. His wrath is scary. But we are equally humbled by his love. Because we fear him, but we love him. And we love because he first loved us. And he has demonstrated his love for us. He has humbled us with his love by sending his son, Jesus Christ. And so we have God's wrath finalized when the reprobate 
will be thrown in the lake of fire to be burned forever and ever. But we have his love as well. That was solidified when Christ came to the earth. And God incarnate pierced himself on a tree. So may his love also bring us to our knees in reverence. So the issue is this. How are we going to combat pride? And as I have shared with you, look outside yourself. Look to God. God's justice and God's mercy. Study God. Be a good steward, not just of his words, but of his nature. And it will serve you well. And when you have a right view of God, it will conversely give you a right view of yourself. That you are utterly dependent upon him. And that is how we will be able to nurture humility and grow it within us. And so we don't follow in the footsteps of Ahaziah. But we're going to sing the last song. And may we come before God with a broken and contrite spirit. Not only because we recognize we are sinful, we recognize that because we know who God is. And likewise, may we see God for all his glory. So he increases and that we may decrease.